Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome back to God's Planning. I am Father Gregory Pine, joined here in person by Father Jacob Bertrand, joined remotely by Father Patrick Briscoe. And this is the first of our three uh, Holy Triduum Retreat episodes. So you become accustomed to hear episodes on uh, Thursdays. Uh, Thursday morning, the kind of normal, ordinary course, and then we added recently the Sunday Lectio Divinas, uh, meditations on the scriptures to help prepare for worthy and fruitful spiritual communion. Uh, We figured, though, that during these holiest of days, we would drop a couple of extra episodes to help to enter into the mysteries uh, that are presented to us by the liturgy, uh, by the church's life, uh, especially in these wild times, Uh, these wild times, and I don't know if they make us want to cry or laugh by a kind of strange, ironic, I don't even know what we're doing right now, but life's crazy, the world's on fire, so we're just doing our best, going forward, woo, okay. Um, so we thought a good way by which to approach it would be to do um, <laughs> to do a theme that had the same number for all three days. This is our thinking, this is our wisdom. Um, so that theme is uh, seven things on each of these most holy days. So today on Holy Thursday, we're gonna do a seven church walk because it's, it's customary to do so. Uh, but we can't leave our homes. <laughs> seven church sit. <laughs> so we're going to do a seven church lounge. Uh, and then tomorrow, Good Friday, it's customary between 12 and 3 to have the seven last words preached. So we're going to do that, seven last words. And then uh, on Holy Saturday, uh, specifically at the Easter Vigil, we have seven Old Testament readings before we get to the epistle and uh, the gospel itself. So we're going to do a kind of uh, tour of salvation history through the seven readings of that liturgy. So the matter at hand then is a seven church walk. Uh, So each of us have visited Rome. I visited uh, when I was 19. And uh, during that visit with some classmates at school, we would go to these different churches, be told things about them, have the opportunity to pray in each of them. But this is a custom, uh, especially sacred in the Holy City and especially sacred on Holy Thursday itself, that after you would celebrate the Mass of the Lord's Supper uh, and then the Blessed Sacrament be taken to the altar of repose, that you would visit seven altars of repose uh, in succession Uh, perhaps with your family, perhaps with a group of friends, as a kind of act of Eucharistic devotion uh, with a spirit of pilgrimage. So as concerns the the churches themselves in Rome, there are seven that are uh, kind of canonical. But I don't know, Father Patrick, you want to tell us a little bit about the stational churches in general? Well, visiting a church uh, for each day of Lent, or visiting a particular church, rather, as the Lenten season progresses, is a very ancient tradition. Um, in Rome. In fact, it's much older than people think, um, dating even to the 5th century. Um, So the Bishop of Rome would announce uh, days that he was going to gather to celebrate the Eucharist in a particular place, and people would come. So this is a a way that the the practice has evolved from the gatherings of the early Christians in the catacombs. So the first stational churches are the the stations of uh, particularly the ancient Roman martyrs. And so it was a revival, a kind of uh, promulgation of the custom of the catacomb prayer, gathering in places of the saints, gathering to remember um, our beloved Christian dead, um, to, to, to pray where their, where their remains were. Um, so then the, the practice evolved, right, from just a few stations to, uh, to, a, station being assigned, uh, to a station being assigned for every day of Lent. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting is that for a long time, the Roman rite was a liturgical on Thursday meaning there was, there was a, an ancient custom of not offering mass on Thursday, except for Holy Thursday. Um, 
And so, uh, so th this, this changed, though, that practice changed um, fairly early on. And then other churches were added on Thursdays. And so the list, the list became full for every day, every day of Lent to visit a particular church. And they were called the, um, the Stational Churches of Rome. The practice spread um, from Rome to other cities. Paris had, a, Paris had a kind of system of Stational Churches, churches that you go to each day. Um, Milan, had, Milan had one uh, as well. Um, and I'm sure there are others. I just don't know them. On Holy Thursday, though, uh, one of my one of one of my favorite memories from the House of Studies was um, how this practice, seeing this practice visiting seven churches, um, be renewed in the in the area around Catholic University in Brooklyn, in the Brooklyn neighborhood where the House of Studies is located, um, because Holy Thursday became a kind of sanctified Halloween. Like as the practice was renewed uh, around Catholic University, there there are a lot there are a number of religious houses. The Dominican House of Studies is just one religious house. In fact, people call Brooklyn Little Rome because there are so many churches and Catholic religious orders around Catholic University of America there. Um, and so you would you would go out on Holy Thursday evening. We did this when we when we were students there. And um, but for the quarantine, I'm sure it would be happening this year. Um, and I. And please God, we hope it will happen next year um, that, that you, will, you'll, you can go out and you can visit seven chapels around Catholic University and you can hear pilgrims. You can hear hundreds of people, in fact, going from place to place and singing joyful songs and reciting prayers. Um, I, I recall hearing the rosary um, by, by one group. And so, so the custom of visiting a stational church um, for every day of Lent has been kind of condensed to visiting just seven places uh, for Holy Thursday. And then even in our own experience um, around the House of Studies and um, the Brooklyn neighborhood of DC, we've seen that revised into a kind of um, seven church pilgrimage uh, on Holy Thursday. It's funny, one of my most distinct memories from one of those seven church walks was before our last visit, I think our last visit was the Marians of the Immaculate Conception who were on the campus of CUA. But in order to get there, we were going up Taylor Street before we turned left on Harewood. And uh, you know, Father Innocent Smith was like, I have a good idea, let's sing the Salve. And he intoned the salve out so we were, you know, climbing a mountain with like a 22% grade. And we're like, <laughs> so I've never been so lightheaded singing the salve Regina, but good times were had by all. We made it. <clears throat> okay, so let's launch then into uh, the seven churches that would be the traditional churches to visit in the holy city of Rome. So you have the four major basilicas, which folks know, St. Peter's, St. John Lateran, Santa Maria Maggiore, and St. Paul Outside the Walls. And in addition to that, you have three additional minor basilicas, which we will kind of pick up in turn. You have St. Lawrence, St. Peter in Chains, and then the Sanctuary of Our Lady of Divine Love. So we'll just, each of us, will just kind of sort them out and we'll say a word about each as a way to uh, kind of cultivate a, a broader ecclesial spirit and a way by which to be embraced by the church in this holy time. So first, we'll start with the biggest, we'll start with the boldest, we'll start with St. Peter's. St. Peter's Basilica, as you know, is right there at the heart of Vatican City. And when you have the experience of walking in through the arms or the, you know, the portico uh, and into that central plaza, you have a, a distinct impression of being embraced by the church. But being embraced by the church in a very particularly, particularly uh, kind of incarnation-based way. Um, you can take a, a tour there at St. Peter's called the Scavi Tour, where you go underneath the kind of excavations beneath the church. And uh, there, at the end, it culminates in, uh, you know, you can see a small box which contains the relics of St. Peter himself, which, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of get desensitized to the nearness of holy things. You can receive, 
uh, in ordinary times, uh, the Blessed Sacrament every day and Holy Communion. And, and so sometimes we cease to be astonished by beautiful things or by holy things, but it is very arresting that there you can see the bones of the first Pope, uh, the bones of the greatest of the apostles. And I remember just seeing that like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. There, there are times in my life where I just kind of passed by. I just otherwise dismissed or just didn't lend my attention to things ready at hand. But there I was very much captivated. I was arrested by the fact that the Lord chose this man and that he literally built the church on this man. Um, and it gives you a sense that the Lord Jesus took human flesh, right? He dwelt among us. Uh, and he redeems our humanity from the inside out, but that he also communicates to human beings who are not hypostatically united to a divine person to be agents and instruments in the communication of grace. And that he chose this man who by all accounts from the scriptural testimony was flawed, right? Who was weak, who was impetuous, who lacked self-knowledge, who was inconstant, who, who proved himself unfaithful in a variety of ways. And yet the Lord continues to use him. Uh, and, and to recognize that in a setting like St. Peter's, which is majestic and awesome and huge, which has these huge arms, which extend out, crowned by all of these kind of Baroque saints and wild postures, uh, to communicate the fact that the Lord is still doing that. He continues to do that, and he can do that to you on account of the fact that you are present to him and he is present to you. One of the great privileges that I was afforded was shortly after I was ordained a priest. Um, I was ordained in May, and then that December, I was able to go visit Rome and to visit St. Peter's. And um, the, the Basilica affords priests to celebrate mass in uh, private masses before the Basilica opens to the, to the general public. And um, one of our friars from our province who was living there arranged that for me, basically wrote in, and, and you can request a chapel, but generally they just sort of you go to the sacristy vest and they have a sacristan take you to whatever chapel they've decided to give you. Um, and I was, I was given the, uh, the Clementine chapel, which is where the bones of St. Peter are, are arrested sort of just um, randomly assigned to the chapel. And it was, it was really an incredible sort of thing because you walk into the Basilica, like Father Gregory was just describing through the porticos, this massive, massive Basilica in the upper church, you go to the sacristy. And as you enter the sacristy at the list of all the popes, uh, who have reigned just on the wall there and carved into marble. And then you sort of get taken down, down, down into the crypt underneath, um, into this very small but beautiful chapel where St. Peter's bones are. And it kind of, kind of gives you a sense of the, the magnitude and the breadth of, of the Catholic Church. Because on one hand, you have this magnificent, huge basilica that can hold tons and tons of pilgrims. But then you also have these tiny, tiny intimate chapels buried underneath um, that like, you know, with St. Peter housed the bones of like one of, you know, the greatest apostle, the first, the first Pope of Rome. Um, it, it's just a wild experience to visit, uh, and to be there. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was really beautiful. Really, really kind of, powerful. I was also sick. I was, mm -hmm. it was like the end of my trip in Rome and I was feeling terrible and the mass was like at seven 30. So got up much earlier to travel. I was like, Jesus, you know, <laughs> and during going, getting there in a kind of a cold December Rome, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was incredibly beautiful and powerful place. Yeah. Dig. All right. Um, Thanks to the next church. So the next church here on our list is St. Lawrence outside of the walls. Uh, one of the two basilicas. So St. Lawrence is one of the three minor basilicas, as Father Gregory mentioned. Um, but it's one of the two basilicas that is outside of the walls. Um, St. Lawrence and St. Paul outside the walls. 
Um, and when we say outside the walls, we mean outside of the walls of the old city of Rome. So the, the walls that would have surrounded, protected the city, these churches were built outside. So still in Rome, but outside of the old city. St. Lawrence, um, the, the basilica there is, um, is dedicated to St. Lawrence, um, the martyr who was a deacon of Rome in the third century. He was martyred um, by the emperor or under the emperor Valerian. He was martyred under the order of the prefect of Rome at the time. And the legend or the story of St. Lawrence is that as a deacon of Rome, he was um, charged with sort of the, the material goods of, of the church. So handling the money, distributing the alms to the poor, these sorts of things. After the death of the Holy Father, St. Lawrence was called on by the prefect of Rome to hand over all of the treasures of Rome to, to the city. Uh, St. Lawrence asked for a few days time to do this. He went away, he distributed all of the alms, all of, or all of the, the goods to the Christians and to the poor of Rome, so as to kind of spread them out from the treasury. And then when he returned, he returned with the poor and the homeless and the sick of Rome and said to the prefect, here are the treasures of the church. Um, so rather than giving material alms, he, he brought the true treasures, you know, the souls, the beloved poor of, of our Lord. This enraged the prefect and the prefect um, ordered his death. So he had sort of this grill thing built or what was built and basically uh, rather than burning St. Lawrence, kind of roasted him to death. And the legend has it that as he was being, I guess, would have been lying on his back as he suffered tormented pain. When that was done, he looked at the executioner and said, this side is well done, turn me over. Uh, so kind of even joking in his, in his, in his martyrdom. Um, the, the whole sort of legend, I think, around St. Lawrence is really built on this, this sort of, this giving of alms, this, um, this sort of sacrifice unto death and imitation of Christ, but also this kind of joy in the midst of suffering, this joy in the midst of, um, of that, of that pain. So I myself, unlike St. Peter's, I've never been to St. Lawrence outside of the walls, but I am very familiar with St. Lawrence, the saint and martyr. And, uh, it's quite inspiring for all of those reasons. Just, just listed. I cut Father Patrick off at the end of the last one. I'm abashed. I'll make penance, adequate penance next time. But I don't know, Father Patrick, if you have thoughts about St. Lawrence. St. Lawrence, the deacon, <laughs> your great love to the deaconate. I did love being a deacon in street. Um, <laughs> but I, I think one, one, one of the great things about St. Lawrence is that he, uh, he was a prominent theme um, in church art. So some saints, some saints are featured often um, in, in, um, in paintings in Catholic art, art history, like Jerome, for example, or Mary Magdalene, you know, there are always paintings of that. Um, St. Lawrence is one who, St. Lawrence is one who f is featured often in such paintings and it's able, it, you're, you're able to easily identify him because he's holding his grill, uh, a lot of times. Um, so he's in the, he's in Michelangelo's painting of the last judgment in the Sistine Chapel there holding his grill that he was being fried on. Uh, but I, when, when you said grill, I immediately thought of like the mouth grill, not that kind of grill. Oh, nice. The grill on which he was roasted. Sort of a cookout grill, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Barbecue. Charcoal, <laughs> Weber. Um, so, so you can see Sam Lawrence with his Weber. Um, but one of, the, one of the other ways that Lawrence is identified is in his vesture. Um, so he's often wearing the dalmatic which is the, the kind of tunic um, proper to a deacon in liturgical rites. And so Fra Angelico, for example, has beautiful paintings of St. Lawrence um, wearing this garment. And um, it's beautiful that Lawrence is clothed in 
the proper garment because um, it's his vocation. As a deacon, it was how he was to be known and identified. And uh, wearing this wearing this vesture is a sign of how he, how he was known uh, by the Lord, what he was called to um, the service of charity proper to the diaconate, um, and that he could be spotted for that even now. I remember one of the uh, one of the first homilies that I preached at St. Dominic's where we lived and we were ordained after having been ordained was about the diaconate because at that point we were basically done with being deacons, um, you know, because I, 14 months is enough. You, you kind of get. You only get three lines. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And one of them yeah, you can't say a, now. You're in quarantine. No peace. Yeah, bingo. Um, but I remember, uh, yeah, preaching on you are a deacon forever. <laughs> Uh, on account of the fact that, that Christ remains servant. But uh, yeah, the diaconate. Sweet Lord, thank you. Um, thank you that it was. Thank you that it is no longer, except in as much as it is still. Um, all right, Father Patrick, take us to our next church. So I have to pause and look up the name because I'm going to butcher it. Uh, because <laughs> who, who can rattle off this whole thing? Okay, so our next church is the Basilica of St. John Lateran, but that's not its real name. Mm. You ready for this? I'm ready. The Archbasilica of St. John Lateran is properly known as the Cathedral of the Most Holy Savior and of Saints John the Baptist and the Evangelist in the Lateran. <laughs> That's why I had to look it up. Mm -hmm. It's nice. like the National Shrine in D.C. I always put to uh, the Basilica, yeah, I don't know National Basilica of the Shrine of the Immaculate. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the right Cathedral of the Most Holy Savior and of Saints John the Baptist and the Evangelist in the Lateran. So we, that just we sounds began, like the Romans couldn't pick out a John to name it after, so they picked <laughs> all the Johns. <laughs> I'm sure they got money for including more things. Um, so the uh, so St. Peter's may be the grandest and largest of the basilicas, but it's not the highest in the hierarchy. The Catholic Church were very hierarchical. Hierarchical. The seven churches, the highest in the hierarchy, is the Basilica of St. John Lateran. It is actually a major papal arch basilica it has the highest rank why because the basilica of saint john lateran is the cathedral of the bishop of rome the bishop of rome's chair peter's chair is actually not technically in saint peter's basilica but it's actually at saint john lateran um, so for centuries for centuries saint john lateran was where um, the popes lived popes living at the vatican um, at saint peter's basilica is a recent thing, you know, within the last 500 years. That qualifies, we're Catholic, that qualifies as recent. 500 years new. Uh, so Pope's living in the Vatican is a, is a recent phenomenon. Where did they live before? They lived at the Basilica of St. John Lateran. Um, so for us, St. John Lateran has a kind of primacy and its name points to that. What is this church? Well, it's the church of Christ the Savior, Christ who saves. And uh, if, we're, if we're here gathering and we're thinking through the mysteries of salvation on Holy Thursday, um, we see Christ's work of salvation um, playing out before us, right? Um, Christ, the Savior, the one who has come to save, is, is undertaking, is walking us through how it is that he's working, how it is that he's working out. So visiting uh, the Cathedral Basilica of St. John Lateran and Saints John the Evangelist and John the Baptist, or I didn't get it right, it's okay, I tried. Mm -hmm. uh, visiting this church uh, on this day is to say, I believe that Christ and Christ alone is the one who saves. 
One of the things when I first visited John Lateran, um, I've been to Rome once, so everything was first visited. I've only visited everything <laughs> firstly. Uh, but I, I, was, I was sort of struck in the comparison between St. Peter's, which is sort of the iconic church of, of the Catholic Church and, and the position of John Lateran. St. Peter's evokes this very, it's very bright and open. And um, yeah, it's just, it, it evokes kind of the beauty and the majesty of of the church and her tradition and these sorts of things. Whereas my impression was as St. John Lateran, it sort of evokes the gravitas and kind of authority, like the sanctuary of St. Peter's, the altar is not against the back wall, it's sort of removed out and it's under that great baldacchino. But at at, um, St. John Lateran, the sanctuary and and behind the sanctuary where the chair of St. Peter is, at least when I was there, it was was quite dark and they had like a spotlight shining down on the chair of St. Peter just to really like show the chair. So it was, it had a very different kind of, feel all within like the tradition of, of the church but it was like here's sort of the beauty and the majesty and the splendor at St. Peter's and here's like the 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 sort of seriousness and like the not authority in the bad way but like the authority of Peter here here it is it, it was it was really kind of a cool thing and two like learning when I learned that the Lateran the Lateran was the place where the Pope sat and where his residence was for centuries in the church um being learning about that made me then put pieces together in my own own mind that the great saints like saint dominic for example would have met the holy father at the latter and not at saint peter's so they kind of have that history come together and this is like this is the to think when i was visiting that this is sort of the the courtyard into the residence where like dominic literally would have walked in to get the official meetings with the the audience with the holy father and other saints too you know saint francis at the same time but the the history is so sort of to get that put right in our minds, in my own sort of understanding was, was uh, pretty, pretty powerful, pretty, pretty cool to have, have that come together. Okay. All right. We're going to pass now to our fourth church. I think at the beginning of the episode, I said that uh, of the, the minor basilicas that we're going to visit, it was St. Lawrence. And then I said St. Peter and Chains in the sanctuary of Our Lady of Divine Love. I lied, but not intentionally. So it's not really a lie formally, but we're actually going instead of to St. Peter and Chains to Santa Croce in Jerusalem, the Holy Cross in Jerusalem. Um, again, I visited this once on account of the fact that I've been there once. And this is, uh, so the church here contains certain precious relics and they're all in this big reliquary and they have a large piece of the true cross. And then they have two of the thorns that were part of the Lord's crown of thorns and then a nail with which he was crucified. And then the last just gets most wild yet. Um, St. Thomas's index finger with which he would have probed the wounds of our Lord's side and hands. So this is like, uh, yeah, the reliquary gold mine of all time. Perhaps you've been to a big relic church, maybe the one in Pittsburgh, maybe the one in Maria Stein or Minster, Ohio, one of those two cities, I forget which we, we once took our, uh, our simple profession retreat there uh, next to that big reliquary church, which is insane. Like every, yeah, every vertical surface of the church is just covered in relics and some of the horizontal surfaces too. Um, but, uh, but here, this reliquary is, is a powerhouse, uh, unrivaled by any in Christendom. And it brings to our attention, the name of the church, the reliquary itself, the centrality and importance of the Holy Cross. And we think, uh, in anticipation of Good Friday, right, that there is, there are three parts to the right. You know, you have the liturgy of the word with the solemn intercessions, you have the veneration of the cross, and then you have the reception of Holy Communion. The veneration of the cross or the adoration of the cross, as it is uh, often called, is something that is peculiar in Christian worship because there's, there's a distinction drawn, you know, between the, the worship that we owe to God and the worship that we owe to not God. 
And so like, for instance, in a litany, you ask God to have mercy on you, but you ask everyone else under the sun to pray for you. You wouldn't ask them to have mercy on you because that's not the type of worship or the not the type of petition that you would say. Um, so we, we offer God sacrifice, adoration. We offer other saints worship or veneration of a sort. But we actually extend adoration to the cross uh, because it mediates for us the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it bears on its, you know, on its wood uh, our salvation. And this, you know, this reliquary church uh, shows us uh, that it is something that can be touched. It's something that can be seen. It's something that can be partaken of uh, in an especially excellent um, and especially worthy fashion. So, yeah, I remember being very moved by visiting that and also stupefied that such like things were available to be seen and prayed before in Christendom. The, I, I think that um, this, uh, this discussion of relics um, just, just calls to mind that Christ uses instruments in, uh, in his salvation and that um, there are many such instruments of the passion and they're often depicted. Uh, this is one of the beautiful artistic images in St. Matthew's Cathedral in Washington, D.C. in the mosaic above. Um, is that Christ uh, there is uh, depicted um, as surrounded by the instruments of the Passion. Uh, that's a depiction of the mosaic, the instruments of the Passion. And so it includes even the column um, that, he, that he was tied to right when he's, um, when he's beaten. Uh, so often the instruments of the Passion include like these weird pliers looking things. Uh, you, you, fi you find the cord with which he was beaten. And not that we know exactly where all of these things are, but, but real things were used in the course of um, Christ under, undertaking our redemption. Um, and that, that's harrowing to, to think that things touched him. Um, these instruments drew his precious blood. Um, they, were, they were used as part uh, of the process by which uh, we were redeemed. All right, Father Patrick, take us to our next church. Um, our next church is another major papal basilica, but it's not the archbasilica, of course, because there's only one of those. Um, this is the Basilica of St. Mary Major, um, which is a, a place, the site of um, a beautiful Roman miracle. Um, so there was um, a, an occasion where it snowed there, um, and this is, the, this is the event of a kind of Roman piety for the Blessed Mother. So this is the, the highest church dedicated to Our Lady in Christendom, um, is the Basilica of St. Mary Major in Rome. Um, there's a beautiful image of Our Lady that's there that the Holy Father venerates um, every time that he comes and goes from the city of Rome. Um, Pope Francis has asked us to pray for Our Lady, um, the, the health of the Roman people um, uh, during this time of pandemic. Um, and this is, the, this is the image that he, that he himself prays before um, going on these, on these journeys. Um, this is also the church where Pope St. Pius V is buried, um, the great Dominican reformer of the church, um, a special patron of mine these days as I'm serving in St. Pius V Church in Providence. Um, and the point, uh, the, the thing that I wanted to draw our attention to on this Holy Thursday about this church is that um, like many of the papal basilicas, Santa Maria Maggiore, the Basilica of St. Mary Major, is a site of um, papal confessors. So there are priests who have a special office for hearing confessions. They hear confessions hours, hours and hours and hours a day, every day. And in fact, they're doing so now, even in a time of pandemic. Uh, those churches are open and there are confessors there, shriving people. Um, the, uh, so the, these, sites, these sites are holy because they're sites, um, they're, they're sites where the forgiveness of sins 
continues nearly without cessation, um, which is an incredible thing. The, the confessors at the Basilica of St. Mary Major happen to be Dominicans. Um, at other churches, they're Franciscans um, or members of other orders. I think the confessors at St. Peter's are Franciscans. Uh, don't quote me on that, I'm not sure. Uh, but at, at St. Mary Major, they are Dominicans. Um, and it calls to mind um, the work that Christ is doing um, and continues to do even in our own day, that we can run to these places um, which are holy, not just because they're places of holy memory, but because they're places where the sacraments continue to unfold, um, the sacraments which are our invitation into the graces of, uh, of these holy days. Yeah, one of the Father Patrick was saying about the, the confessors here at the basilicas and how they're the basilicas, the duties at these basilicas are assigned to different religious orders generally. And uh, as St. Mary Major, as Father Patrick was just saying, the confessors are Dominicans, they speak multiple languages, they're in the confession or the box, as we say, you know, for hours every day. That's all they do is hear confessions. That's their, their one apostolate. Um, the sacristans at St. Mary Major, though, are Franciscans. <laughs> so you have this, this world of Franciscans and Dominicans running this great Marian Basilica. And the first time I visited uh, St. Mary Major, <laughs> the, the only time. time I visited St. Mary Major, we wanted to, I was with another friar, an American friar who was showing me around, and we wanted to pay a visit to the tomb of St. Pius. So he's in sort of a side chapel, and uh, the, the gate to the side chapel was locked. So we thought, well, like, we have to go find a Franciscan now. So at first, the Franciscan who was an Italian was sort of like, well, it's locked and closed. But eventually, we were able to get him to get somebody to open up the, 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 the gate to the side chapel so we could go kneel in front of the tomb, which had a big gold case over his, um, over his body in the tomb. Uh, and as we were kneeling there, the security guard that was letting us in took out this old key which i'm not exaggerating must have been like four or five inches long like this old old key and he unlocked the two locks on the gold front and folded it down and we were probably kneeling you know like a foot in front and there is the body of saint pius v like lying right in front of us it was like whoa uh it was really really awesome really beautiful and uh yeah just sort of struck by especially this basilica knowing having the dominican connection of these basilicas being really loci or places of, of mercy. You have the saints, you have the, the priests hearing confessions constantly, you have the saints interceding, and of course the greatest intercessor for us is our, is our mother here at this, at this basilica in particular. And the Holy Fathers throughout the years have, have continued to emphasize this by their devotion to it, but also encouraging our devotion to Our Lady and to this basilica. All right, as we kind of round the last turn of our pilgrimage. We have two churches remaining. Father Jacob Bertram, take us to the next. Yeah, so our next church on our stay-at-home pilgrimage is, uh, is the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls, one of the four major basilicas. Like St. Lawrence, um, St. Paul is, was built outside of the, the original walls of the city of Rome, so he's, he's a little ways out of kind of city center, um, or the old city center, I guess. Um, the, one of the things that because St. Paul's is kind of outside of the old city, it, it has a bit more, I mean, St. Peter's has, they all have a lot of property, they're big basilicas, but St. Paul has this beautiful kind of like courtyard garden in the front and right in the smack dab in the middle is this incredible statue of St. Paul. Um, he's wielding his sword and he's, I believe he's hooded, right? His hood's up there. It's just a massive statue. Um, I wish I knew who the, the artist was, but I don't. Um, I probably should talking about the Basilica, but it's, it's a striking, striking sort of image of their St. Paul, um, sort of the defender of the faith. Um, so 
it reminds us too, there's this sort of, um, because of St. Paul's kind of missionary um, life that he led spreading the gospel across um, sort of the Near East and then into Europe in his life, um, having to travel outside of the city to go visit uh, St. Paul outside the walls, it kind of engenders this kind of missionary nature of the church, um, the missionary dimension of the church. Um, this this basilica was erected by Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, over the site where St. Paul's St. Paul's is, is thought to be buried. So in the basilica is the tomb of St. Paul with his relics, um, and uh, is a really beautiful kind of place that that engenders kind of the idea and, and that um, sort of the hope of conversion that St. Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles, people travel out to see him, receive the graces received in this magnificent basilica, sort of see the imposing St. Paul. We're kind of with these great figures of the church kind of left wondering what they might have looked like or kind of even their physical appearance and, and these sorts of things. But you have this idea of this this great missionary of, of the gospel sort of just there for you to kind of behold and, and venerate and beg his intercession. The place of St. Paul outside the wall um, also, uh, to, to my mind, calls um, to mind prominently the differences among the disciples themselves, right? So why, why does the location have anything to do with this? Why does he raise this question? Well, St. Paul is outside the wall because St. Paul was a Roman citizen and he couldn't be killed inside the city. He had, he had certain privileges uh, and rights and standing as a citizen of Rome that the other apostles, the other disciples, didn't have. And uh, the, the, fact that, the fact that he was killed by a sword outside the walls of the city of Rome, um, bring that to mind in a very prominent way, that Christ, that Christ knew that there were differences among them, um, that they each, they each brought um, particular gifts, they each brought particular talents, um, they, they each brought their own family backgrounds, they each brought their own weaknesses, they each brought their own glories. Um, all the disciples brought all of that um, to their service of Christ. Um, and that's an incredible thing on this Holy Thursday as we, uh, as we remember the 12 gathered there in the presence of Christ. I think um, Jesus called this band of men together uh, to, to serve and imitate and proclaim him. This is just a, a small thought, but I, we couldn't pass on except I mentioned something, you know, kind of devastating and existential. Uh, but this is, you know, all, the, all the Roman basilicas. Uh, they have undergone a variety of reservations, excuse me, renovations. Uh, they've been, they've burned, they've been rebuilt. You know, we, we know that uh, St. Peter's was rebuilt most recently during the, the Protestant Reformation and that raising of funds for it was a, uh, a staking point, a point of contention. Um, so uh, St. Paul outside the walls is the one to have most recently burned. It was like somebody who was working on the roof started a fire and then the whole thing, you know, burned quite tragically. But I guess uh, it's, it's, what, what I love about in like, this is in like the 19th century. Yeah, right? it was like it, it was like recently. recently. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like you could have known the guy. Um, <laughs> um, but it reminds you that basically everything fails. Uh, we talk about that sometimes the average lifespan of a religious order is under 200 years. Uh, many flame out within a generation of the founder. Um, but but a lot of ecclesial things fail. We have the promise that the universal church will endure. But local churches might fail. When you think about how the map of northern Africa looked in the early 600s and then at how it looked in the early 700s, very different. You know, you go from like 600 dioceses to like none. Uh, so, so things can fail and things do fail in the church. And yet the church endures. So churches aren't museums. They're places of worship. They burn down. They are rebuilt. And yet 
the census fidei orients the lay faithful and the, the, the grace of ordained priesthood orients the, the ministerial priesthood to worship as one for the glory of God, you know, irrespective of time, place, setting, and peculiar circumstance. So I'm heartened by that in a kind of nihilistic way. Uh, so for our last church, <clears throat> uh, we're going to pass then to the sanctuary of Our Lady of Divine Love. This church is most recently built of any of the churches that we visit today. And it was only added to the pilgrimage by St. John Paul II during the Jubilee year, 2000. Um, and that, that provides a kind of jumping off point for describing the fact that the pilgrimage is something that's in progress, right? So we know that physically in a pilgrimage, you go from place to place, but also the nature of the pilgrimage itself is developing. So like, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my favorite Catholic theologian and biblical scholar, Alistair McIntyre. <laughs> That's a joke. Sorry. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, so McIntyre talks about in moral philosophy that as you proceed in a discipline, you're clarifying the goals and you're also clarifying the principles. So there's this kind of twofold movement of revisiting. Uh, and he says, it's like storytelling in a narrative. You get better at telling yourself a story and you're better able to identify the point from which you come and the point to which you're going. And that's true of our own pilgrimage in life. We, we do a decent enough job of recounting to ourselves what it is that's going on, trying to appreciate the Lord's work. But if we're honest, we're constantly revising. Like we're very certain right now that we're supposed to do this thing. And then like in a year, we're very certain of this other thing that's probably contradictory of what we formerly thought. And we're not embarrassed by that because we recognize that human life is a life on the way. So the pilgrimage can be added to, the pilgrimage can be refined, the pilgrimage can grow organically out of what has come before into what comes next. So yeah, that's just a little, little, little thought. I'm struck by, again, the, the, our Lady's presence in this pilgrimage. And, um, you know, we had St. Mary Major and we have the Sanctuary of Our Lady of Divine Love. Um, John Paul II's love of Our Lady is, of course, well known in the church. He added the mosaic of Our Lady up in, in St. Peter's Square after he was after he was shot shortly after his um, after his election to the papacy. Uh, and I think it's a it's a good reminder that on pilgrimage, um, whether we're doing a seven church walk or whether we're doing a seven church church sit and staying in, um, whether we're talking about the pilgrimage that is the Christian life, God willing, moving closer to heaven, that we are we're doing it together as a church. Um, that includes not only our our communities, our families, these sorts of people, but also the communion of saints, and that our our Lady leads us in that she leads us to her son um that's the reason for her existence for her intercession is to is to take us her adopted sons and daughters to her son closer to her son so i think it's so fitting that that she has two churches and and you know two churches dedicated to her um in in this pilgrimage um as as that great reminder that that she exists she intercedes she prays for us that we may, you know, arrive safely at the destination that is that is uh, awaiting us at the end of the pilgrimage. Um, so I think as we enter, as from you know, as we hear are here on Holy Thursday, and as we enter into sort of the darkness of, of Good Friday, that that we remember to continue as the Holy Father has exhorted us to pray to Our Lady to sort of take us through and and guide us by the hand as only a mother knows how to to her son. This basilica is not the Basilica of Our Lady of Divine Faith or the Basilica of Our Lady of Divine Hope, even though one can talk about Our Lady's extraordinary faith and Our Lady's extraordinary hope. But this is the Basilica, the sanctuary of Our Lady of Divine Love, of charity. And charity, uh, if, uh, charity works in us so as to bond us together 
to unite us. That's what charity does, is it, is it um, makes us one. This is what the Eucharist is for. This is what the Eucharist does. It's, um, it's the, the unity, the unity of the assembly, the unity of the people of God. Um, this is shown forth typically in our ability to gather together, um, which we're all feeling a, a very great sorrow at the present time because we aren't able to express that unity. It's shown forth in the actual, um, in the actual uh, receiving of the Eucharist Typically on Holy Thursday, we, we can receive the Blessed Sacrament and thereby thereby be united to Christ in charity. Um, and the last great sign, which we still have access to, is spiritual union with Christ. Um, we, we, can still, we can still call upon him to pray the prayers that he teaches us to pray, um, to bring to mind um, before, our, uh, before our mind's eye, um, to, to call forth from our hearts, um, the, the mysteries that he's invited us to, and that those will affect real union. It's not, it's not the ordinary means of union that we're accustomed to, um, but on this holy day, um, Christ is still inviting us to be united to him in a real way. So with that, we conclude our virtual pilgrimage. Uh, we come back home, uh, having returned to the place from which we departed, but seeing it as if for the first time, as T.S. Eliot describes, or G.K. Chesterton muddles at the beginning of orthodoxy. Uh, so we are that yachtsman, we are that pilgrim, who have returned back to this er the very same place, but having been changed by uh, the transforming encounter. Uh, so do this, uh, share this episode with three people. Think about people with whom you've had a conversation in the last week who are binging Tiger King, who are lamenting the loss of the NBA season, who are playing flash games or who have spent the last six hours on their phone playing Candy Crush, which I think was popular like six years ago, but it just shows my knowledge of pop culture. Um, you know, pick out, pick out three people and share with them and say, Hey, this is a nice little retreat for Holy Week. Uh, I think you might enjoy it. You can also check out the Thomistic Institute is having a Holy Week retreat with two conferences each day. Uh, so Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then a the final conference on Sunday. Those, uh, will be coming to you on YouTube, so you can enjoy that as well. A variety of resources available. Uh, obviously, you want to make time for silence. Uh, if you find that these episodes are getting in the way of your science, silence, don't listen to them, okay? What we want is to have a fruitful triduum, and you deploy those means which are best suited to it. So we're praying for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you tomorrow. God bless. Thanks for listening to God's Planet a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.